may be seated. Indeed, this morning we come remembering that our God is the holy creator of all things, the holy God of all that we have. If you have your sermon outline, I would ask you to take it and turn with me there in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have finished our study of Philippians, and um, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be covering some messages and various passages, and um, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians this morning. And um, the Lord quite clearly led me to this passage this week um, for us, and uh, I want to um, ask you some questions and uh, ask you to consider some things as we begin. In all reality and in all candor, what does candor mean? That means honesty. In all reality and all candor, what does our society do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does our society do with it? For sure, for sure there is a great variety of responses to that question, and there are a great there is a great variety of responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For sure, there are some, a few, who deeply and genuinely receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through repentance and faith, they believe upon who Christ is. They believe the word of his life and his teaching. They believe in the account of his life and his sacrifice. For sure, there are a few who embrace him completely. But we know that wide is the road that leads to destruction, and we say a few because narrow is the gate that leads to life, and Jesus himself said, few are those who find it. But it's quite evident when someone has truly received the gospel because we see their lives are flipped upside down. Everything changes. Their, their lives are lived in a very, very different purpose, in a very, very different direction than the world around them. You see, true Christians in a fallen world where um, the society is running headlong away from God. They're running to God. And so there is this beautiful picture of them going against the flow. There are a few who receive the gospel. But there's many who superstitiously or religiously identify themselves with aspects of the gospel. There's many who they just, you know, they, they wear the cross around their neck, or maybe they have a fish on their car, or there's a Bible verse on the wall at their home, or maybe they, they maybe even come to a worship service on a regular basis, and there is a, some type of a religious, and some kind, sometimes we would even say a superstitious view of God, view of icons of God. Maybe they prayer repetitive prayer, and maybe they have an idea that if I do these things, then God will have favor upon me, and if I, if I don't do these things, that 
I will fall into disrepute with him. But really, there's no substantive impact of the true gospel on their lives in the way that they truly think. There's no accountability of morality before God. Marcy and I were recently um, up in one of the southern states, and we kind of noticed as we drove around, every, I said to Marcy, everywhere we look, there's God. Everywhere we look, every lawn has something in the lawn. Every car has, a, has some indication on it. Businesses, you go in business, is, and it's a, it's a very cultural thing to recognize God. Now, there's some aspects of that that are very wonderful, but we also know that there's some aspects of that that are merely cultural. There are many who, in some way, identify with aspects of the gospel, but do not completely embrace the true gospel. Increasingly, there are many more who simply ignore the gospel. There's there's more who, than ever before here in our culture, that they are simply disinterested in the gospel. They are interested in other things. There's any one of a million things that they're interested in, But when we start talking about the God who made the world, who loves us, and who would come down and lay down his life for us, and then take it up again, they simply don't have time for that. In fact, what their real interest in is in their profession, or in their hobbies, or it's, they're they're really interested in their sports, or they're interested in working on their house, or their retirement, or they're interested in their pets. I know, meddling now, right? They're interested in their pets. They're interested in their family. You say, well, what's wrong with being interested in family? But, but when we sterly really start gauging what they're truly interested in, it's not God. Increasingly, they're interested in a victimized status in our society. We have a, a tremendous rolling obsession with victimization. They're interested in maybe their life plan, their goals. Maybe they're just interested in their own fun. One of many, one or many of these occupy their mind and heart. But there is like there was no room for Joseph and Mary and the newborn baby to be born. In the end, there's no room in their hearts for him either. They cannot be bothered with the hassle or the inconvenience of God. And many in this group um, represent actually um, that second group that they kind of have a little bit of the gospel but not very much. There's a fourth group. There's also increasingly a number who flat out reject the gospel. It's not that they're just not interested. They reject the gospel of Christ and the claims of God's word. These are the ones who either pity those who claim Christ. They, they see them as naive and they, they, they just pity them. Oh, those poor people. Those poor people that are in, in bondage to some religious ideal. They, they pity that as they reject the gospel. 
or they scoff at that as they reject the gospel. They, they scoff at those who in their mind abandon all reason as they see it and commit intellectual suicide to embrace a restrictive and ludicrous fairy tale that just makes life insufferably boring. So they either pity or they scoff or maybe they attack. They attack those who cannot understand or tolerate as people of faith and conviction of, in righteousness. They, they have a hostility toward that belief and, and that they would actually very often say, you're the problem if you have faith. There are many different responses to the gospel, and I I just want to say that the passage that we come to this morning show us that in 2,000 years, nothing has really changed. What we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 18 through 31, shows us that nothing has really changed, that, that mankind, humankind, people are still in the business of either receiving the gospel or rejecting the gospel in one way or another, whether they even realize it or not. And we see this from the life of Christ, and we see this from the ministry of Paul, and right into the 21st century where we are today in 2020, we see that the cross is either, and notice the title of the message, that the cross is either foolishness or wisdom. The cross is either foolishness or wisdom. And notice the next slide, the cross is either utter foolishness or ultimate wisdom. That's what the cross is. Let's read the passage again. uh, Edward read this passage for us, and I want us to see it again and and just kind of notice some things from it this morning. And um, the context of it, as we'll look at in just a moment, will help you really understand it that much more. But look what it says. And I'm going to ask you to circle a few things as we go very quickly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being what? Being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, or I will come against it. That's Isaiah 29, 14. So, The Apostle Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and he's saying, Isaiah said this. Isaiah said that God's wisdom is a much greater wisdom, and he will confound the foolishness of the world. Look at verse 20. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We're going to see what that means. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what we preach. We preach the end of verse 24, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standard. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. But God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Wow, that's a very important statement. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and what? Redemption. Verse 31. Why? So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want you to see a few things here. The context of this whole thing that will make this whole passage come alive to us is, number one, that Paul showed up in Corinth and began preaching the gospel to this very pagan, very cosmopolitan city. Cosmopolitan, what does that mean? It means coming from everywhere. People coming from all over the world, all over the cosmos, all over the world. They're coming to the city, and we're going to look at why they were coming to the city in just a second. But this, that in the, in the pagan culture of the first century, this is a very pagan place. There, there, there's people that are, that are really moving in and moving out, kind of like South Florida, kind of like L.A., kind of like New York. A lot of people come in and go in all of the time, and that means they don't have family around them. That means that they don't have their roots around them very often, and that means they're a little bit more uninhibited. That means they'll kind of live loud and proud, or they'll kind of live really however they want, knowing that they don't have much of a reputation to maintain because they hardly know anybody. It's not like small-town America. The accountability of the culture isn't there, um, and so there's a, there's a bit more of a worldliness, a bit more of an edginess. And they're sexually immoral. Fill that in. That, that because of that, there's, there's less accountability. They're more sexually immoral. And they're status obsessed. So a lot of money is flowing through Corinth. We'll look at why in just a second. A lot of money flowing through there. And so, and not only the money, but also just the whole issue of the Roman culture and Greek culture versus the barbarians and the others that are around them. Status, who's who? Look at the next one. Trendy philosophies throughout the book of Corinthians. We see all of these different philosophies. And you know, when I look at these things, I just kind of think about even this modern world in which we live. Notice the map that is on the screen um, that is here. There's Greece over uh, to the right is where you see Ephesus, but right in the middle is Corinth. And we're going to zoom in a little bit. I want you to see part of the reason this place struggled so much um, with any type of morality. Now, that, that, these are big land areas and big ocean areas. And where you see Corinth is, it is a very narrow land bridge between that whole area that says Corinth on top of it. But the green dot is where the city was. And so people would come there to pass over in their ships. Their ships would be pulled up out of the water. They didn't have the technology to dig a canal. 
but they would pull the ships up out of the water and they would haul the ships over land and then put them back in the water. And so while the ships were being hauled up and pulled over land, some four miles in that place, they would go party. The ships would be rolled on logs or on large wheel apparatuses in order to make it across the land. It was a lot safer and a lot faster than sailing all the way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula that you see that Corinth is on. And so because of that, anybody who was traveling, even the sailors were free. And we know sometimes the reputation of sailors, we have some sailors in our church, we know that not all sailors are like that, but you guys know I mean, you've heard that before. Oh, man, that guy curses like a sailor. Where he lives like a sailor. You know, part of the idea is sailor goes to a new town, doesn't have a lot of accountability. And so people coming to this city from all around the world and philosophies and ideas and wealth and commerce flowing through there. And yet, this is one of the cities that the Apostle Paul goes to to preach the gospel. And that's a, that's a big statement about who God is interested in. You know, the Apostle Paul was hearing all about Jesus hanging out with Mary Magdalene and hanging out with tax collectors, hanging out with others. He knew that the gospel was for everybody, not just Jews and not just righteous, good religious Jews. The gospel was for the downtrodden. The gospel was for the wicked. And so it explains why there's so many things around the Corinthian church that affect it. We're going to move quicker, quicker now. Look at number two. Many people come to faith in Jesus so that the church at Corinth is established by Paul and, his, and, and others. Number three, Paul eventually goes on to other cities and then settles in Ephesus for three years. So he, he leaves Corinth after it gets started and he goes across that that Aegean Sea, and he's there for three years. And notice number four. From Ephesus, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church. And by the way, we don't have it. You say, wait a minute, this is 1 Corinthians. Well, this is 1 Corinthians of the letters we have. There's one that is referenced to that's missing. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. And notice what it was about. Paul wrote to them his first letter dealing with what? Sexual immorality. Those world views around the church had made their way into the church. Number five. And then Paul hears a report that they misunderstood his letter and that the immorality persists along now with disunity and social snobbery. So people were in the church thinking themselves better than others. Um, I was on the phone recently, somebody this week, and they were telling me about the work environment that they work in and how in this large organization, the snobbery and the, just the meanness and, and really one department looking down on another department. One level of employee looking down on another level of employee. And this person was just, just telling me, we, we have so much struggle with this and we waste so much energy with this conflict with each other. Many of you have seen that. Many of you have experienced that. Some of you would say, well, I was saved out of that. I was in the middle of that. I used to be like that. 
notice here with me, that had made it into the church. The church not only was sexually immoral, but they were fighting with each other, and they were looking down on one another. The rich or the slaves or the the masters, I mean, everybody had their hierarchy in who they were. Number five, Paul hears a report Excuse me, number six. Then Paul receives a letter indicating that the Corinthians were confused about a few things. They were confused about marriage and divorce. So they they didn't understand what marriage was all about. And and someone writes to him and says they don't understand marriage. And they they don't understand divorce. There's problems with divorce in the midst of of our congregation. They're participating in pagan religions, so they've kind of got Jesus, but they got other stuff too. And there's confusion about how to worship God in an orderly way. So their worship services were, were a bit chaotic, so that in so much so that people could come in and see Christians worshiping and think these people have lost their minds by the chaos. And there was confusion over the reality of Christ's resurrection. Had he truly risen from the dead? And what was the importance of that? Now, anyone who's studied Corinthians, anybody who's been around church for a little while, and you kind of know what Corinthians is about, you say, oh yeah, I can remember. There's these passages on marriage in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, and divorce, and on religions, and on orderly worship. And boy, there's 1 Corinthians 15 that talks all about the resurrection. So we see that that's what happens. Number seven, so Paul writes another letter, which is 1 Corinthians. It's the one that we read. It is a substantial letter. And you remember Philippians had about 2,000 words in it, a little over 2,000 words in it. Look at this. 1 Corinthians has over 16,000 words in it, clearly explaining that their conduct is totally out of step with the gospel. So the Apostle Paul's second letter to them is another correction letter, and he's saying, you guys are not living like Christians. You're not living in step with the true gospel of God. You see, they are disunified because of their arrogance and their selfishness and their sensuality. Those things have come in to bring about division. And notice the next one, their worldly attitude and actions were incompatible with God's free gifts to them in Christ. And what are his free gifts in Christ? Can you look up there in verse 30 at the bottom of the passage, right there on the front page? Look what it says. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us that Jesus comes to them and he becomes to them wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and look at that last one, redemption. This is your salvation. Now flip the page and I want you to see a couple of things here as we bolt along. That's the context of the passage. And, and as, you, as you kind of think about that, that environment, 1 Corinthians starts to make a lot of sense. I want you to see that the bottom line of our scripture text is this. As we read this, you see, there is a great difference in what appears to be the case 
and what is the case regarding the word of Christ, excuse me, the word of the cross, or this is God's plan to save the world. Now, I just want want you to look up there at verse 18. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He, he, he is showing us that option A is this, fill this in. Option A is to those who are perishing, the cross appears to be foolishness. This is crazy. Why would you worship someone that the Romans nailed to a cross? Why would you think that this is your Messiah? They killed him. Now, there's, this is... This makes a lot of sense because when when it comes to the Jews, they are the scribes. And if they missed the whole point of God's Old Testament prophecies of how God would come, and now we we have the benefit of hindsight, we get to see clearly that this is what Jesus was fulfilling. But for them in that day, many of them thought it was utter madness to say that this was the Messiah. You see, Jesus was so far beneath what they were anticipating Jesus was not what they wanted in a God or in a Savior. Jesus, when when they see him go to the cross, they say, look at that, a Jew, one of our own, is murderously, torturously executed by the Roman picture of oppression and the Roman picture of rejection. Why would he be our Messiah? And then the Greeks... They're not not interested in religious pedigree, but they are interested in all of the fine ideas of the world. Notice with me in verse 20, look what it says. We look at the Jews and the Greeks. Who is there? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Right above that, the Jews. Where is the debater of this age? Right above that, the Greeks. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it was pleased through the folly of what we preach, that's Christ going to the cross, to save those who believe. Look at verse 22. We see again this idea of dealing with what the Jewish thought was and the Greeks. The Jews demand signs. You know, that was the big problem. Jesus Jesus would be going along and they would say, oh, master, do a sign for us, then I will believe. As if Jesus hadn't already done signs. Jesus said, everything has already been done. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. But they were always calling on a sign. When signs were given, they ignored them. Notice the Greeks. The Greeks are always seeking wisdom. Why were the Greeks seeking wisdom? Because the Greek civilization before the Roman civilization was known for its philosophy, was known for its democracy, was known for its order and its high intellectual ascent. It was known for those things. In fact, some of you remember the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. How many of you have ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? You've seen that movie. It's a hysterical movie. I would watch the first one. I wouldn't watch the second one, quite honestly. But the first one, Mr. Portokalos. Do you guys remember Mr. Portokalos, the girl's dad? He was a Greek. And some of you are laughing, and and I know why you're laughing, because you, you, you see it here. 
What was he always doing as he's driving along in the car with his girls in the car, and he's talking, and he's, he's saying, now the Greeks, the Greeks, when your people were swinging from the trees, the Greeks were building the Parthenon, you know, or the Greeks were building the Acropolis. The Greeks and all of their, and he says, you give me a word, any word, and I will take it back to the Greek. You remember that? The Greeks were very arrogant about their philosophy. The Greeks were very arrogant about their knowledge and about their, about their thinking through the things of the world. And so for a Greek, real spiritual interest to them had to do with all of these new thoughts. And the Apostle Paul says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified. Now let's not forget about what the cross was. The cross was a grotesque and violent image and reality of suffering, rejection, and oppression. You know, we've become desensitized to the cross. We wear it as a pendant around our neck. We have it on the wall of our house. It means much to us. We have three crosses out in front of our church. The image is everywhere. In fact, central to what we do here, we have a cross that is here. And we have, this, this means much to us. But if we really think about the image of the cross in that day, that was a frightful thought. In fact, crucifixion, was, was so rejected and so impolite, you typically wouldn't speak of it in a regular conversation. I mean, how many of you would speak very much about an electric chair at dinner with guests and talk all about, oh, well, you know, electric chairs, you know, they're wooden, they have leather straps on them, they have this thing that goes on the top, and, you know, the voltage comes into the building, it's very, very powerful, and, you know, when they, when they turn it on, you know, and we, we could start describing all of that as the Scripture does. And you would be, oh, or, or the guillotine. We could talk about the guillotine a lot, Right? But why do we not do that? I mean, I, I could describe to you, we lived in Europe where in the Middle Ages, they found very creative ways to kill people. And there were times that we would go visit a castle and hear stories, and I would leave, I would leave disturbed at what humans are capable of. Friends, that is part of the picture that we need to understand, that the cross is offensive, the cross is brutal. It's brutal just on human terms. But when you add on top of that that you claim that the one who was crucified to save the world was God, that has to be absurd. That has to be insanity. Maybe death by lethal injection. Or maybe death by quick beheading. But not crucifixion on a cross. 
Friends, we have to understand that what the Apostle Paul is trying to help us see, even here in 2020, through the the Holy Spirit working through his words, is that the word of the cross is folly to those who are rejecting God. It is offensive, it is ludicrous, it is beneath them. But to those who are being saved... We're seeing the broader picture. We're seeing the broader picture of God's wrath against sin and his wrath that is so great and so complete that he himself has to come bear it. And there's no other way, listen to this, to explain the depth of his love for us. And so he says, the, the, the way that I'm going to show you my love is that I come and bear my own wrath so that you can go free. And so we, we come to see, oh no, this isn't ludicrous, this is wondrous. This isn't foolish, this is wisdom. This isn't hatred, this is love. So friends, as we consider these things, we, we look that the, the, the power of God calls us. You see, the Gentiles, they, they thought that the cross was too simple. It was too bland. They thought that the cross was maybe even too, I've put it in here, too reprehensible. They said, and that's just below there, it's just, it's too gross. It's unfathomable that a God would do that. That's the ones who are perishing, but what about the called? Look at B. Those who are called, the cross appears, to those who are called, the cross appears to be the great wisdom and power of God. That's what we see in verse 18. That's what we see in verse 24. Look what it says in verse 24. In fact, put your finger on verse 24 and let's read it out loud together. It's right there in the middle of the passage. Let's read it out loud. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, see, it doesn't matter what you are. doesn't matter what you are. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, let's read it, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, that's what we preach is that Jesus is the power of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. That's how he saves the world in love. In fact, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15, uh, 1 through 5. This is just in the next chapter. It's right around the corner. Look what it says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, so Paul is writing to them, and he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You see, that would be very Greek. He didn't come being eloquent in philosophy. Look what he says in verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. There's that old stinking cross again. That blood-stained, rotting cross. That place of violence. That place of rejection, that place, that's how the Romans oppressed the world. Whenever there was a rebellion, they would say, just crucify a bunch of those guys and they'll stop it. 
And they would set up, there were times there were rebellions where across whole countries, they would set up a cross where anywhere you stood along the main road going across the country, you could see a cross on the horizon where a man was hanging. That's how they stopped oppression. The Romans were brutal. People didn't like the cross. The cross was seen. And so the Greeks, who were Romans, they might say, man, they crucified that Jew that they are claiming is the Messiah. You've got to be kidding me. He must have done something wrong. We don't just crucify anybody for no reason. You see, friends, this is, this is really pulling out. How, what do we do with the cross? And in this day and time, there are people that they, they hear this message and they say, I'm not interested. I, can't, I don't really even understand what you're talking about. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to submit myself to anyone or anything else. I want to do what I want to do. It's not appealing to me. Look in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 2 in verse 1 through 5. It says, and I was with you. Look what he says. In weakness, not strength. He's saying, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of Doesn't that go right along with what we see here? We see that in verse 31, he says that Christ is all of these things up there in the box on the page. In verse 31, he says, Christ is all these things so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, it's all about him. It's not about us. It's all about what he has done. It's his salvation. It's not ours. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter, another writer of the New Testament, disciple of Jesus, knew him face to face, saw him, walked with him. Look what Jesus would later write. He writes, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. You see, God heals us through his sacrifice. So, what is the cross? What is the cross to you? What does this table, and understand that this table represents the cross. This table represents the sacrifice of Christ. Is the cross utter foolishness or is it ultimate wisdom? Maybe some of you would say this morning, I guess I've nobody, nobody's ever challenged me to think of it that way. I've been coming, been learning, been listening a little bit. I, I've, I've never thought deeply about Jesus dying in a brutal way. God taking my place of punishment. You see, some would say that's utterly foolish. But others, 
when we hear the voice of God calling us to believe and calling us to obey, calling us to repent and to turn to Him, it becomes the greatest wisdom that we could ever know. In all reality and candor, how do you regard the word of the cross? In all, rega- in all reality and candor, how do you view the cross? Well, here are the key indica- Here is the key indicator. It's how do you live? How do you live your life? That's, that's what shows whether or not you embrace the cross. Now, that's not what causes you to embrace the cross, but it's what will reveal whether or not you embrace the cross. And what do we mean by that? It's your words. Words are a big deal to God. And your behavior. So, you see, the words represent the heart. Jesus said the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. So, words represent what's in our heart. We don't say things and just don't mean it. You know, oh, he doesn't mean that. Oh, no, he does mean that. That's why he said that. Now, the only one who can take all of this and make all of this glorifying to him is he himself. So my question to you this morning is, what is the cross to you? Is it utter foolishness or is it ultimate wisdom? This morning I want to invite you to run to the cross. If you're a Christian in this room and you would say, I know that I know that I know, that Christ has redeemed me from my sin, that I, my faith is in him, I want to encourage you to allow this text and this passage cause you to run to this table in gratitude. And for those of you in this room this morning and that are watching online and no one has ever challenged, what do you do with the cross? What do you believe about the cross? I want to encourage you to run to the cross in repentance and faith. I want to encourage you to no longer push the Lord's work and His great plan of salvation away. I want to encourage you, if you hear His voice calling you today to repent and to believe in Him, I want to encourage you to run to Him in faith and repentance. How do you do that? You say, Lord Jesus, I now see who you are. Lord Jesus, I recognize what you're saying. I hear your voice. I want to turn from myself and turn from my sin, turn from my rejection, either by purpose or by incident. I want to turn to you in faith. My friends, that's how we come to faith in Christ, is we turn to him in faith and believe. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we thank you for the glorious timely word of the cross. Lord, we thank you for the cross that shows us and tells us your love, that you have told us what you have done that we might live. And Lord, I pray that as weak as my preaching may be, but as strong as your word may be, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work in every heart hearing my voice and that you would cause us to deeply consider how do we view the cross? Is this the greatest wisdom that one could ever know? 
Or is this a distant foolishness that somehow we either tolerate or maybe reject? Oh, Father, may we run to you in belief. Lord, we recognize this morning that it was for our sins that you were pierced. It was for our sins that you laid down your life willingly. No one took it from you. You laid it down. And Lord, it was your love that caused us to hear your voice. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that we would be a people who run to you in faith and obedience and that it would affect the thoughts of our heart and minds. I pray that it would affect the words of our mouth and the actions of our lives. We're going to sing a great hymn, a rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. See, see the, only where to, the only place to hide from God is in Him. If you're trying to hide from Him in yourself or maybe in your own righteous deeds, friends, you're naked and you're exposed. But we do, we run to Him in faith and we let Him hide us in His love, in His blood, and in His brokenness that we might live. Let's stand together and sing this great hymn.